Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, war, murder and memory in East Clare, how Dublin was shaped in the first part of the 20th century and life and death in Kenmare during the 19th century. Now, last week we explored Ireland's Middle Kingdom, found out about the history of Rathgar and Churchtown and heard some great stories about Galway over the centuries. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to our website, newstalk.com or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the Scarif Martyrs, War, Murder and Memory in East Clare. In November 2008, Tomás McConmara sat with a 105-year-old woman at a nursing home in County Clare and she took him back in time to the events of the 17th of November 1920 when news of the brutal death of four men who became known as the Scarf Martyrs was revealed to the local community. The story has now been told in a new book, The Scarf Martyrs, War, Murder and Memory in East Clare. It's published in paperback by Mercier Press. The author is Tomás McConmara. And Tomás, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Patrick. This was a very emotive and well-remembered incident in the Irish War of Independence. Can you tell us about uh, the Scarf Martyrs and what exactly happened on that day? Sure, yeah. Well, I suppose the, the four young men are, are, are taken to the Bridge of Killaloo on the, the night of the 16th of November 1920 and, and are shot dead. And there's been a real powerful memory about that incident, which, you know, many of, most of it has focused on the death and how they died, the brutality of it. But obviously, you know, the, the book has to deal with, with that incident to, to break that all apart, figure out why it happened, but also then try and explain the significance of it and why, as you said, the, the emotion is so strong, even 100 years afterwards. So the, the Scarf Martyrs themselves are... Uh, three active IRA volunteers, Alfie Rogers, Michael Brodnick-Mahan and Martin Gilday, who were living in the town of Scarif uh, in East Clare and had been at that stage very active IRA volunteers and had been involved in a number of you know, fairly high-level actions uh, with the East Clare IRA up to that point. The fourth man, Michael Egan, it's important to separate out to some extent because he only becomes part of the story, you know, almost in the final days of it, but is forever attached to them as one of the four Scarif Martyrs. So he's the caretaker of a house in Whitegate in East Clare on the shores of Loch Derg called Williamstown House. And as a result of their activism, the other three men come to that house in early November and look for shelter and Michael gives it to them. So when, as it turns out, information is given to the to the British forces and in particular to the G Company of the Auxiliaries who are based in the Lakeside Hotel and they make their way to Williamstown House on the morning of the 16th of November they encounter Michael Egan who again is not a member of the IRA who I've been able to discover from oral tradition was described as you know really gentle type of a character even my grandmother Patrick danced with him I discovered and when she was 19 and she talked for, for many years about how really uh, such a gentle type of a disposition he had but he tried to divert the auxiliaries to tell them nobody was in the house. Of course, they discovered the other three IRA volunteers, um, took them all captive, brought them back on a boat, the SS Shannon, up to Killaloo, um, where they were interrogated and tortured for a number of hours. And eventually then, as I said, brought out to the bridge that night at 12 o'clock and uh, were shot dead. Um, the official account, of course, as is as, as often the case in these scenarios, um, claimed that they tried to escape the custody, um, but immediately the vernacular memory countered that and, and the contention was that they were murdered in cold blood. And you've done great work interviewing people, talking to people who, who remembered it, who have accounts, families of the people, you even tracked down the family of one of the men who, who shot the martyrs. 
Yeah, and I suppose what's key to all of that, uh, Patrick, is that um, like I, I'm an oral historian primarily, and uh, of course, you know, oral historians will focus on memory, but 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 obviously deal with conventional records as well. But what was key to the whole process for me was taking my time and uh, I spent 17 years researching the, the the book and you know as you mentioned I interviewed Margaret Hoy back in 2008 and you know I was still interviewing people up to you know 2020 even uh, prior to the publication of the book that gave me the opportunity over time to to not only document much more than maybe if I'd have published it a number of years back but it also gave me time to to find people the the grandson of one of the RAC men who were on the bridge that piece I only discovered him in the last number of years and it took me a long time to find him and that was a real interesting learning process in itself because only when I spoke to the man did he become aware of his grandfather's involvement in this you know, um, incident and as you mentioned it's one of the most remembered incidents in the War of Independence certainly in Clare Christy Moore sung the, the famous song about it but but here's an Irish man in his 70s who wasn't aware his grandfather was, was directly involved so you know th- that took time and patience uh, you know which I think is required to, to try and understand the story like this and, and and obviously you know the families of the people involved the community the oral tradition that is passed on and how it's passed on as well is always so important as well as the silences but they can only really be documented in their in their fullness over a long period of time so it's, it's one of the things I think I'm happiest about is that I didn't you know, publish it earlier when maybe I might have had enough material to get a book out, but I mightn't have had the full understanding, if that makes sense. And is it possible for, from this length of distance to identify the spire, the informer who betrayed them? Yeah, I dealt quite comprehensively in the book, um, Patrick, about that whole incident because, you know, it's obviously such a critical part of the revolutionary period in general. Um, and you know, I was able to identify approximately 20 spies in the whole of East Clare who were active. Now, they weren't, you know, obviously all involved in this incident, but I was able to actually break it down to three individuals. And I made the decision a number of years back that I, I wasn't going to name those three individuals or those individuals, whoever they turned out to be, um, if they were local people particularly. And, you know, I've dealt with it very, very comprehensively in terms of, you know, the culture of spying, the the, 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 the practical implications of it, um, as well as the, the, the legacy of it, is, you know, obviously it's hugely significant as well. But it had such a traumatic impact and the, the spy dimension of it was so significant. I, I eventually found, for example, an original um, handwritten version of the song. Now that song has been sung all over the world, Patrick, for, for, for decades, but never had anybody heard the verse about the spy that clearly had, had, had not been sung in public because it was so... Um, full of emotion and, and the language was something I suppose wouldn't lend itself to, to ballad sessions but it, it really was important to get a handle on that but also to deal with it sensitively um, and, and as I, said, I, I hopefully have done that and managed to get that balance. You get a great insight as well into the experience of war on a local community and how communities can be scarred by events like this. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, and one of the things I think was important in the treatment was to separate the impact of this whole incident on the families and the community, because, you know, I've been very fortunate to establish really good relationships with all of the families involved. And, you know, for them, it was just pure devastation. You know, I, I mentioned in the opening of the book that those families didn't want martyrs. Of course, they're all very proud, you know, in the fullness of time. Um, but, 
but primarily there's an impact of pure and utter pain and trauma. And and that's the same in, in some cases for the community who, who suffer through a war, whether they're active or passive or, or, or opponents of the Republican movement. They all experience it. So I tried as best I could, of course, from, you know, whatever records I could find, but particularly from the, the oral tradition and oral testimony I was able to capture, because we sometimes don't, um, you know, uh, understand fully what it would be like to live through that level of volatility. And I felt it was really important for to understand the story of the Scarf Martyrs, that you have to understand the community experience within which it took place. And I think there's also then uh, interesting insights which we're able to get from talking to people like Paddy Gleeson, who I think at that time was Ireland's oldest man. What were you able to find out from him? Yeah, well, I suppose I spoke, I was fortunate enough again because I started this this research, you know, when I was quite young and I, I was able to speak to people who were there at the time. And, and oral tradition is hugely important, Patrick, and, and it's very important to document that. But but being able to speak to people who were, you know, teenagers at the time, Paddy Leeson would have been 15 years of age. And he experienced that whole War of Independence period, uh, you know, with, with uh, you know, almost adult um, eyes and that that was really critical. He knew the men themselves. He was at the funeral. He was there the night that the bodies were returned, and he talked an awful lot about you know the level of emotion that that was that was attached to the whole experience. Because for example, the British forces refused to release the bodies for two days after they were killed, and that adds a wound on top of a wound. But actually, does you know bring about more emotion um to the story you know he was able to talk to me about how the british forces came into scarif the following day raided pubs i discovered for example that they went into macmahon's public house with you know the parents of one of the men who had been killed and whose body was still in killaloo and sung where is my wandering by tonight uh, you know in front of the parents so you're able to get an insight into that local experience that will not be captured anywhere else within conventional records so it was really, really critical. And Margaret Hoy, who was 105 when I interviewed her, you know, recall the day that the news arrived to, to their home in Scarif. And just again, the level of impact on, on a family that wasn't directly connected to the story gave me an insight into the, the emotion the community went through uh, during that time. And for me, Patrick, you know, I've, I've felt for a long time that, you know, it's not sufficient to, to, to document information or provide an analysis of that information. You have to try and as best you can understand the experience and then hopefully convey that to, to, to the reader. Um, and speaking to Margaret and Paddy and, and others like them really helped me to try and understand in some way that, that experience. Very good. Well, Tomás, thanks so much for joining us tonight to talk to us about The Scar of Martyrs. The book is called The Scar of Martyrs, War, Murder and Memory in East Clare. The book is published in paperback by Mercier Press. The author is Tomás McConmara. And Tomás, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much, Patrick. The Dublin cattle market was an institution in the Irish livestock sector in the 1950s and a new book examines the market's final years between 1955 and 1973 and how its decline mirrored that of the traditional livestock fairs. The book is called... The Dublin Cattle Market's Decline, 1955-73, to A Story of Radical Change in the Irish Livestock Industry. It's part of the Maynooth Studies in Local History series, published in paperback by Four Courts Press, and I'm delighted to welcome the author Declan O'Brien to the show tonight. Declan, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. So talk to me about the Dublin Cattle Market. Where was it located exactly, and just how significant was it in, in its heyday? Well, the Dublin Cattle Market was located um, right at the intersection of Purchase Street and uh, North Circular Road off the Quays in um, the north side of Dublin City. And 
For more than 100 years, it was established in 1863 by an Act of Parliament. It was effectively the stock exchange for the Irish livestock industry. It was at the apex of the marketing system for cattle in the country. It set the prices at fails right throughout Ireland for the bones of 80 years. And it was really 90 years, in, in fact. And it, it was really the, um, the shop window for Irish cattle. And talk to me about the numbers involved, because they, it, we really are talking about uh, uh, quite incredible numbers of cattle and sheep being sold there every week. Yes, it, it, at its peak in the 1940s and 50s, it was, it was selling up to 5,000 cattle a week through the market and up to 8,000 sheep. Um, and what was really interesting, I suppose, the, 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 iconic, um, the iconic images of the, of the market were not actually of the market itself, but of people moving the cattle through the streets of Dublin from the market to the North Wall because the market was intrinsically linked with Ireland's exports, live export of cattle from the 1860s to the 1960s for over 100 years. And the importance of that trade in the um, 1940s and 50s particularly is that that trade generated about a third of the state's export earnings. So we were moving about or exporting about between 500 and 600,000 cattle every every year. And the main um, market or the most influential market in that trade was the Dublin cattle market. And each week you had up to 5,000 cattle were sold at the Precious Street sale and up to 8,000 sheep. Now, really quite incredible. And uh, an interesting part of the story is the connections that the market developed with local people in, in the areas. And that was a, an important part of the story as well. Yeah, it was a real interface between urban and rural. So that you had this very rural business in an urban setting. So you have the people who moved the cattle through, um, through North Dublin from the, the cattle market in Persia Street to the docks and in North Wall, um, they were drovers, and they were local Dublin residents from the Fibsbury area or that side of town, and they were the people who worked in the market were amazed by how good these men were to turn and twist cattle, to what we'd say handle cattle, to to move cattle, and they they, they could split out three, four, and five cattle from. 30 cattle for a particular buyer. They were able to move the cattle through the streets with with a dog and one man in front of them, one man behind them. They were just expert cattlemen. And also, the way the market worked, the cattle, when they came up from the country, were held in what were called cattle parks. These were 10 and 15 acre sites that ring the west of Dublin. They're now uh, technically part of Dublin City, so they've been Castlenock, Cabra, Fibsborough. And these rovers would go out to these cattle parks where the cattle were held for the three or four days before the sale, move them into the market, stall the cattle. The market itself would be opening at five o'clock in the morning. They then move the cattle after the sale, either to the dock or to the Dublin City Abattoir, which was across the road, or else onto factories around the town. 
So they were expert um, cattle traders. And Declan, what went wrong then? Why did it go into decline? And and why then did it close in 1973? Well, I suppose that that ties it into the, the changes, the profound, the profound changes that were occurring in the Irish cattle industry. Um, in the late 1950s, um, the industry was effectively controlled by the cattle exporters. So there was a drive by the farm organizations and farmers to, to get more control of, the, of the, the, the cattle business. And they established cooperative maths. And this was from the late 1950s. And the difference between the maths and the Dublin market was that the Dublin market was controlled by the etiquette and by the traditions of the fair. So you had one man who was um, looking to buy cattle and nobody else could interfere in that business until he was done with the potential buyer. So the farmer said, we need a different method to sell cattle. And they went for the cooperative mouth model where cattle came in and they were openly bid on by everybody at the sale. So it was a transparent way to, to sell cattle. It was uh, farmer-friendly and the, the mouths themselves were owned by the farmers. So when these mouths started gaining um, popularity in the 1960s, it effectively undermined the um, position of the, Dublin, of the Dublin cattle market because no longer was it the premium market. Also, there was the increase in cattle processing in Ireland. The beef industry and the beef processing industry really um, exploded or expanded in the 1960s. And we see in 1965, there was about 50,000 tonnes of beef was exported from Ireland. But by the end of the 1960s, that had gone to 170,000. So what we have is then a lot more cattle that were exported live to Britain and to Europe were now being processed at home. That took business out of the Dublin market as well. And as the numbers being sold in the Dublin market declined inexorably through the late 60s, the losses at the market were, went in the opposite direction. It was, by the time it was closed in 1973, it was losing about £40,000 a year. And these costs were carried by the Dublin Corporation because they effectively controlled the market. So it was a combination of all these factors. Also, you had the butchers in the city used to buy all their cattle in the Dublin market. But they now were able to purchase their cattle from the meat factories around the city and from wholesale butchers. So they no longer frequented the market either. And it, it just lost its standing. And also, Dublin Corporation um, was rightly saying, why do we need a market inside in the middle of Dublin when we have mouths in towns ringing the city? So you had a mouth in, in Maynooth, in, in Nace, in Ashburn, so they're saying, let them handle the sale of cattle. 
and take it out of the city. So there was an absence, I think, as well, within the Dublin Corporation of a strategic vision for the, for, for the Dublin cattle market. Very good. Well, Declan, thanks a million for joining us tonight. The book is called The Dublin Cattle Market's Decline, 1955-73, to A Story of Radical Change in the Irish Livestock Industry. It's published as part of the Maynooth Studies in Local History series in paperback by Four Courts Press. The author is Declan O'Brien, and we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, history on News Talk. Welcome back to Talking History. Between 1910 and 1940, Dublin suburbs grew considerably and suburbanisation of the working classes became a stated policy for the first time with new and idealistic schemes such as Merino, Drumcondra and Crumlin being built. And many of the formative decisions that came to shape the modern low-rise, low-density city were taken at this time. And a new edition of the brilliant book Dublin 1910 to 1940 has now been published, subtitled Shaping the City and Suburbs. It's published in paperback by Four Courts Press. The author is Ruth McManus. And Ruth, many thanks for joining us tonight. A pleasure, Patrick. Thanks for having me. So it's a new edition and it has a new foreword. Uh, talk to us about the new foreword because it's a wonderful new poem by Dermot Bulger. Yes, um, what an honour uh, to have Dermot's poem. Uh, it's, it's, it's a really wonderful piece um, which I, uh, was written during lockdown by Dermot because he's a local to Drumcondra and he, he actually lives close by to the former home of Herbert Sims who, of course, was the housing architect from 1932 and designed many of the schemes which were so influential and have only recently really been recognised. But he had a wonderful achievement during his lifetime of uh, seeing so many uh, houses and flats being built uh, for the people of Dublin. And housing is so important in this volume. Of course, we know how important it is today. But in this period, 1910 to 1940, we see the city being shaped. And it's very interesting to see how housing issues uh, were so important at that time. Yeah, well, I suppose uh, one of the key questions like of, of the time was the housing crisis then as now. So right through to the end of the 19th century, the problem of the tenements was hugely uh, significant in the politics of the city. And uh, it's really only in the early 20th century that we start to see attempts to solve those problems. And really, I suppose, a new idea of how we should lay out our towns and cities, how we should try and build suburban housing in healthier environments uh, for the people. Yeah, so talk to me about the development maybe of, of some of the suburbs and some of these schemes. For example, Marino, Drumcondra and Crumlin. What was the what was the thinking behind them? Yeah, so I suppose you have to go back a little bit, really just to the turn of the 20th century. A man called Ebenezer Howard came up with this idea of the perfect marriage of town and country to try and get the best of town and city. And he called this the Garden City. And uh, it was going to be an entirely new town, new towns uh, to be built in England. Um, and he actually succeeded in, in building the first of these at Letchworth. Um, but uh, when that was designed, um, one of the things about it was the way that the housing fair was designed uh, by Unwin and Parker. And um, they uh, designed this low density, uh, low rise uh, housing with a lot more attention to site aspects, to retaining uh, 
existing trees, for example, to having much more uh, flow of air and much better light in houses. Because if you think of Victorian houses, they tend to be uh, narrow and uh, extend back a long way. Anybody who's renovated one of those houses, they often have these tunnel backs, the very dark interiors. But the idea was to bring light and air into houses and building at lower density would enable uh, families to have gardens. And because people were uh, being moved out from uh, very poor conditions, overcrowded, cramped, uh, slum-type housing, the idea of light and air were considered to be hugely beneficial and much more healthy for people. So all of these ideas then, this idea of the garden suburb, of the low-density, low-rise, and all of these other design elements, uh, came through really from what was initially uh, cooked up, if you like, in the UK. But it was an, a movement that spread across Europe and into North America as well. This is really uh, seen as, as a very important way of trying to solve uh, the huge problems of many, many cities. So talk to you about some of, the, some of the ideas they had at the time to deal with housing and this concept of the housing continuum because uh, they saw it very much in a non-binary way. Yeah, well, I suppose I, I've put that label on it, but, but certainly, yes. We tend to think often of you either have a privately owned house or you have a house that is provided or a flat or whatever that is provided by the local authority. So in this time period that we're talking about, that was Dublin Corporation, what we know now today as um, Dublin City Council. But in fact, if you look at what was being provided, and this goes right through the century, it's not just 1910 to 1940, what you actually see is, yes, there was housing built by private developers, and yes, there was housing built by uh, the local authorities, but the local authority also provided sites, service sites that were taken up by private developers. Um, there were all sorts of um, interactions between these two apparent um, you know, poles. So we also had uh, public utility societies, which were a form of cooperative housing uh, that often used uh, corporation provided sites. And indeed, corporation housing was often built by private developers who tendered for those contracts. Um, so there's lots of ways the corporation also was responsible for running Small Dwellings Acquisition Act, um, which was a way of providing cheap mortgages to people who would eventually own their own homes. So the people like my parents uh, in the 1960s were able to buy their house in a private housing state in Dublin using um, a mortgage that they were paying back to the corporation at a really low rate of interest. Can we talk then about maybe perhaps some of uh, the individual housing schemes and some of the developments and also the roles of some of the people? Because you, you look at the builders as well who, 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 who did such a significant work in this period. Yeah, well, where, where, where do you start, really, I suppose? Even Alexander Strain, because yeah. he seems to be in such a, a dominant figure. Yeah, so Alex Strain is, is one of these people who nowadays, his name appears in advertisements for, for housing, you know, as a sort of a, a mark of approval. Um, and I suppose Strain is an example of the typical type and scale of, of operations that was undertaken in uh, the early 20th century. So builders typically would have acquired land um, and they would have built a a small number of houses, maybe two or three or four houses at a time. And then they had to get rid of those houses either 
by selling them, but often also by renting them out. So retaining the ownership of those houses, renting them out, uh, to get enough um, capital to build the next few. So it was actually a really tricky process. If you didn't get it just right, uh, you quickly ran out of steam, ran out of money, uh, went into debt. But Strain was um, very adept at his uh, role and um, was very successful in building large parts of Drumcondra and Glasnevin. Um, and one of the features, I suppose, was that he frequently moved house. And you can sort of trace him in the street directories, appearing in different locations, you know, often only a street away or two streets away. Um, so he would sort of be on site and he would be supervising the latest batch of houses as they were being uh, put up. Um, of course, it must have been difficult enough for his family. Uh, but I was talking to uh, somebody who uh, whose father worked with Strain, and her father was uh, involved in, involved in clerical work, and Strain actually gave him a start in the building trade. Uh, she said, "Well, why don't you have a try at building some houses?" And this would have been in the 1930s when he was building Cremorne. Uh, so this chap said, "Oh yeah, okay, I'll give it a go," and became a house builder and ended up building quite a, a large portion of Rathfarnham. But it wasn't necessarily something that was, you know, people could come into that profession in a way that we mightn't have expected, you know, without necessarily any formal training and so on. Well, Ruth, it's a fascinating story about how Dublin was shaped and indeed the suburbs. It's called Dublin 1910 to 1940, Shaping the City and Suburbs, part of the Making of Dublin City series, published in paperback by Four Courts Press. The author, Ruth McManus. And Ruth, thanks so much for joining us tonight. A pleasure. Thanks very much, Papi. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History, history on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. A new book tells the story of a remarkable man's efforts to help starving people during the Irish Great Famine. And it throws new light on the relationship between class, religion and poverty in Ireland before independence. The book is called Ken Mare, History and Survival, Father John O'Sullivan and the Famine Poor. It's published in paperback by Eastwood Books. The author is Colm Kenny. And Colm, you're very welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Can we begin with uh, John O'Sullivan because he really is this remarkable figure and he's someone who was very much loved by the people. I don't think the, the church hierarchy uh, had quite the same view of him because he was a somewhat independent figure and, and perhaps the landlords would have had a different view of him as well. He, he really did play such an important role. So who was he and what drove him? Uh, what drove him most was the needs of the people in the Kenmare workhouse during the famine, that's for sure. Um, but where he came from uh, was a very ordinary family in Tralee uh, at a time when the uh, Catholic Church was beginning, I suppose, to re- restore itself uh, and to um, move into a position of uh, development and authority in Ireland that was uh, to continue to rise until the foundation of the state uh, and he was sent to Kenmare, which was a very new and very small town, obviously, in a remote part of Kerry. He was sent there in 1839, uh, and of course he arrived just a few years before the famine began. So the whole catastrophe came on him uh, not long after he got there as parish priest. And one of the remarkable things is that he kept journals, which have never been published, but which have survived in Killarney Diocesan Archive. Uh, and these are really a wonderful source of information about life in Kerry and life in Ireland at that time. 
but also about how he responded to the great catastrophe that he found himself at the centre of. And you mentioned there the, the unpublished journals. There are a whole range of, of sources that you use in the book and many of them have never been used before. And it shows how there are maybe uh, different sources out there, new sources out there that, that throw new light and offer new perspectives on periods of Irish history. I think it, it does. And, and it, it's, it's wonderful how uh, local historians have been able to salvage some of these records. The entire collection of minutes and records of the Kenmare Workhouse, dozens of volumes, were thought to have been lost. But some years ago, uh, a man in Kenmare set out to look for them, and he eventually found them in a building, uh, in a public building, in the attic of a public building in Dingle. Uh, and they're now safe in the Kerry County Library in Tralee. Uh, and again, I was able to dip into these, and they're just an enormous resource. I mean, there's enough in them for a number of books uh, and still local historians keep alive so many memories and so many records and, and are a great source of information for somebody writing a book like this. And then, of course, there, there are other records. And one of the remarkable things about Father John O'Sullivan was that he managed to get himself to London a few times on behalf of his uh, parishioners. And he, he made personal friends with Sir Charles Trevelyan, the great a uh, powerful civil servant of Trevelyan's corn in the song, to such an extent that he actually was invited to dinner and stayed in Trevelyan's house. But he also got himself into the uh, Association for the Relief of Famine in Ireland that was set up by very wealthy bankers for the main part in London. And he managed to get himself before that twice uh, to appear in person at a time when they had only heard two other uh, petitioners in person. So he, he was a resourceful individual who lobbied very hard for his people. He got himself into a parliamentary committee as well to give evidence and gave quite striking evidence. He, he, he wasn't there simply to beg. He was there with solutions. He'd met Lord Devon uh, uh, commission when, when it was in Dublin, looking at the use of land shortly before the famine. And here he was back in Parliament, um, making friends, making contacts, uh, and putting forward economic arguments and social arguments for reform. He was a great defender of the poor laws, and he argued that the poor had a right to relief, an entitlement, which was quite radical for his day, of course, and people thought this was something should be left up to charity. And is that why he wasn't the the favourite priest of the, the hierarchy and why they even blocked him when there was a chance he might become Bishop of Kerry? I think that had more to do with his views on the uh, the church itself, he was quite critical of some of the administration in the church for not doing more. Uh, and he also didn't particularly like uh, the, the direction in which uh, the church was going theologically. Uh, I mean, he, he took exception to the dogma of the Immaculate Conception at one point, for instance. He said he never had to study it as a dogma when he was at Maynooth. He didn't think it was necessary. And while nobody had more respect than he did for the vigor of the mother of Jesus, he didn't think that this kind of thing was really useful. He was very much one of those priests who was of the people, going out on stations into the country, meeting the ordinary individuals, understanding them. Uh, and he didn't, he didn't win any friends in high places when he was sent to the Synod of Thurlis, when the Bishop of uh, Kerry, Cornelius Egan, was ill. He rubbed Cardinal Cullen and Archbishop McHale up the wrong way with his, with his uh, methods. And when he was chosen to become Bishop of Kerry uh, after Cornelius Egan, uh, 
by the by the priests of Kerry, and then indeed by the bishops of Munster who agreed with that. Uh, Cullen stepped in and uh, stopped his um, his promotion to the to, to bishop, uh, and Moriarty got it got it instead. So he was a peculiar mixture of, of radical uh, uh, and reformer, and on the other hand, like in many many parish priests, he opposed violence. Uh, violent or secret organisations. He didn't like the Young Irelands. He didn't like the Fenians, and he called himself a bear repealer. Um, so he was an interesting individual. And I think looking at his life, you see it wasn't all black and white then. That, that it's not the simplistic version of a society that we sometimes get. It's a great way into seeing the different nuances and the different kinds of uh, social and economic forces on both sides. Uh, for instance, some of his best friends, as they say, were Protestant ministers. But on the other hand, he is credited, and somewhat reliably, with having been the priest who coined the phrase supers to describe proselytizers. Canon O'Rourke, for instance, the great uh, priest historian of, of the Church of the 19th century, gives him credit for it. He claimed credit himself, and the Folklore Commission uh, has evidence of people locally crediting him with this this, uh, this coining this phrase supers to describe the people who were trying to lure Catholics away from their faith during the famine. There's a fascinating personal connection uh, to O'Sullivan that got you, I think, first interested in this story. Well, indeed. Uh, my, 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 my grandmother uh, had left in the family a handwritten copy of a long letter O'Sullivan had written during the famine uh, involved, uh, to do with his clash with a local landlord Dennis Mahoney, uh, and I, this had lain among, in a box of our family papers uh, for a long time, and it was only when I took it out one evening and began to see it and, and decided to follow up on it that I realized how interesting an individual he was, and I discovered that um, we were related. My grandmother was a, was a descendant from his linear grandfather. Um, they both went back to uh, uh, a man in Kerry who was the captain of a ship in Jingle. He used to bring uh, butter to Lisbon and wine back from Lisbon to Kerry uh, but unfortunately he went down with a ship in a storm in the end and was never seen again so this got me very interested and there are just fascinating aspects to it, I mean there was a connection to Terence Babington Macaulay who's, um, who's sometimes in a cliche described as uh, the great British historian, in his um, four volume history of England he remarkably has a very long relatively very long history of Ken Mayer embedded in it, uh, which turns out to be self-serving because uh, Babington Macaulay, he was related to, to Trevelyan, his, his sister was married to him, but he was also beholden to Lord Lansdowne, the great Lansdowne uh, landlord, one of the biggest landlords in Ireland who owned thousands of acres in Kerry. Lansdowne had got him a seat in Parliament, uh, and in a way Babington was writing this history of Ken Mayer to gratify the settlers and the landlords who had come in uh, and I devote a whole chapter in the book to, to deconstructing that because I think you have to reset the uh, origin of Ken Mayer and the background to Ken Mayer to fully understand where Father John O'Sullivan is coming from. Uh, and I found that very interesting and I found the connection uh, to Macaulay something that I think people will, will uh, find quite intriguing. Well, it's a remarkable history of Ken Mayer during one of the darkest periods of Irish history. The book is called Ken Mayer, History and Survival, Father John O'Sullivan and the Famine Poor. The book is published in paperback by Eastwood Books. The author is Colm Kenny. And Colm, thanks a million for joining us tonight. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. 
For many centuries, Ireland was known as the land of saints and scholars. Yet the Irish experience of Christianity was never simple and has never been simple or uncomplicated. And a new book describes the emergence, the long dominance, the sudden division, as well as the recent decline of Ireland's most significant religion. And in doing so, it tells the history of this island and its peoples. The book is called The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author is is Crawford Gribben. And Crawford, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you, Patrick. It's great to be here. Let's begin with the rise. Uh, when and how did Christianity come to Ireland? That's a really interesting question, partly because it's almost impossible to answer. We don't know when the first Christians arrived in Ireland, but we do know there were Christians here in 431, because that's when the Pope sent Palladius to be their bishop. He was the first bishop of the Christians in Ireland. Um, it's possible these earlier Christians had been slaves or you know, were um, malcontents who had travelled here from, from elsewhere. Uh, we don't know who they were. We don't know where they were. Probably somewhere in the Leinster area. We're not exactly sure. So for the, year, the year 431 is really the first year, the first hard evidence we have for Christians existing on this island. And it's fascinating how there was, from that very beginning, an, as, as a peculiar Irish dimension to the, the, to the church, that there was a very much a, a different way or a unique way of doing things. That's right, Patrick. So really from its earliest days, the Irish church develops in a very idiosyncratic way. It's beyond the boundaries of the the Roman Empire, even as the empire is contracting through this period. But it's also beyond the boundaries really of organised Christianity. Uh, when, When Palladius and then Patrick come, Uh, and their associates uh, in the early 5th century, middle 5th century, they're really pushing beyond territories that that have ever been Christianised. And so they're they're improvising a lot. And I think one of the really obvious ways in which they do improvise is in terms of church government, how how to organise the church. Elsewhere in Europe, uh, the church by the 5th century had a, a very clear structure of episcopal oversight. In other words, the church was ruled by bishops or governed by bishops and synods. Uh, but power resided in persons. And these uh, bishops were often located in you know major urban centres, towns, cities and so forth. But Ireland had no towns or cities really worth speaking of in this period. And so church government had to improvise to, to take account of that fact. So power and authority tended to be rooted in monasteries and in monastic federations rather than in bishops as such. Now, there's a really interesting overlap between bishops and monasteries really for the first couple of centuries of the Irish church. And again, that's most unusual in in European terms. But what that means is that there emerges in Ireland a kind of competition, a kind of rivalry between different we might almost say denominations of, of monasteries, some of them looking to Columbus, some of them looking to Bridget, some of them looking to Patrick, but they all take on a slightly different complexion. And so even from the very earliest years of Christianity, there's variety within the Irish church. There's different ways of doing things, even different ways of calculating the date of Easter. Um, there are, you know, there's, I think, maybe a, a two-week window of variation between different dates on which Easter is celebrated between these different monastic federations. And that continues right up to the 8th century. But one of the most enduring, long-lasting of the idiosyncrasies of the Irish church is its tendency to allow its priests to be married. Uh, And that's something that uh, reformers try to stamp out in the 12th century. Uh, But it's something that continues right the way through to the 16th century, when, ironically, it's the Protestant Reformation uh, that really pushes 
the traditionally minded part of the Irish church, the, the, the Catholics, to organise as a community much more fully and finally, and finally to stamp out uh, the, the practice of clerical marriage. Now, skipping ahead a number of centuries, let's go to the 16th century and the Reformation. Why did the Protestant Reformation fail in Ireland? The Protestant Reformation failed in Ireland most obviously because nobody wanted it or hardly anybody wanted it. There was a, some kind of census taken at the beginning of the 17th century that suggested at that point, which is now, what, 80 years after the beginning of official uh, reform within the Irish church and state, around 80 years after that reform began, there were still less than 120 Irish-born Catholics who'd converted to the Reformed Church. So wh- why was it such a dramatic failure? Well, it seems to be such a dramatic failure precisely because some of the things that were pointed to as evidences of abuse in the church in Europe, for example, clergy with uh, concubines or, or semi-official wives and families, while elsewhere they may have been objects of ridicule and satire, in Ireland that kind of practice was regarded as normal. It was regarded as just part and parcel of what it meant to be a clergyman, a, a priest within the Irish Church. So the you know the, the major doctrinal issues that that we know about in the European Reformations, um, Martin Luther's claim of justification by faith, for example, it just doesn't get purchase in Ireland. It never really gets momentum going in Ireland, partly because almost everybody is very satisfied with the church as it exists. And then again, skipping ahead some centuries to uh, the creation of the state in Northern Ireland, uh, the creation of the free state in the South, you have a a significant division there politically, but there's also a a kind of a religious division as well in terms of uh, the dominant religions. That's right. So if, if you look at the Free State, which becomes the Republic eventually in the later 1940s, it's got a very, very small Protestant population, which continues to decline until by the early 1960s, the Protestant community in the Republic represents probably around 3%, 4% of the, of the total population. In Northern Ireland, there's a, a much different situation. Northern Ireland gets set up supposedly as a Protestant parliament for a Protestant people. But in fact, around one third of the population is Catholic and that that population proportion continues to grow through the history of the Northern Ireland state. So in some senses, what happens in 1922 all the way up to the 1937 constitution in what becomes the Republic is, is a really ambitious attempt to create a fully functioning Christian state. De Valera and other architects of the early state are trying to work out what should a Christian state look like and they get a lot of advice, not just from Catholic clergy and, and, and members of the hierarchy, but from Protestants as well. And they're really deliberately trying to craft something which is distinct and which is really up to date in terms of Catholic social teaching. They can do so because they will have implicitly the support of a vast proportion of the population for whom that is the most natural thing to do. In Northern Ireland, the state is much more conservative in a way. It, it doesn't really break with the past in the way that the the southern state is able to do, it, it, it never really has the ambition to create itself as a fully functioning religious state, although certainly some members of government would, would have liked that to happen. And finally, Crawford, what do you see as the future of, of Christianity in Ireland, given that there has been such a, a rapid process of secularisation, definitely in the south and, and, and happening in the north as well? Is there a future? I think there's definitely a future, but it's, it's going to be a very different kind of Christianity to the kind of Christianity we've been used to. The major denominations uh, are certainly beginning to crumble 
in terms of weekly church attendance uh, in, in the Republic. That's especially obvious. It's obvious too in the North, though I think that, that it's taking much slower, uh, but the direction of travel, I think, is, is broadly similar. And so I think that, you know, we're going to see a much more lay-led, a much more improvisory, a much less denominational, much less churchly kind of Christianity. Uh, I mean, the church lurches from crisis to crisis, always has and probably um, is likely to continue to do that. Um, but with gifted leadership, you know, with some clarity of vision, with some ambition, I think there's no reason why it can't reform uh, and perhaps think about how to do things differently in the future. Okay, well, Crawford, congratulations on the book. It's called The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author, Crawford Gribben. And Crawford, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Patrick. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to everyone who put tonight's show together, Marais O'Sullivan, my producer, and Peter Malloy on sound. Some great shows coming up in the weeks and months ahead. We'd also love to hear your ideas. Just send us an email, talkinghistory at newstalk.com. So join us next week and in the weeks ahead on Newstalk. We've been Talking History. Good night.